At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email CampbellLawReporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Stephen Dinkle, and I have the privilege and the honor to talk to somebody who, if you know who he is, man, are you blessed, because this guy is going around everywhere helping people and really preaching the word, so to say, on how to help with humanitarian efforts uh, with the American Red Cross. Thomas Harper, Campbell alum, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for this opportunity, Stephen. I really appreciate it. And uh, we we can't say thank you enough for uh, reaching out to us and wanting to be on the podcast. This is great. Uh, so, Thomas, first, I want to dive into your background a little bit. And then also, what's your day to day life? Like, what do you do uh, mm-hmm. with the Red Cross? And let's start with that. Yeah. So I'm a North Carolinian born and bra- uh, born and raised, but. I live in uh, up a little further north now. My, my life has taken me away from the Tar Heel State, unfortunately. So originally from Greensboro, my parents are public school teachers. And uh, just I didn't have a good idea that I would ever leave North Carolina. And then the army came knocking and enlisted out of high school as a private. Just it's a good lesson in contract law and why you need to be 18 uh, maybe you should be 25 or 30 before you can sign a contract. But I inked my name at actually at 17, had to have my parents sign. And so I was on that pathway. I was in the reserves at NC State, was doing Army ROTC. And as I was going there, sort of formulated this idea that, you know, maybe maybe my my pathway involved the law in some way, shape or form. Knew a little bit about the JAG Corps in the Army. And the Army, uh, as I got to the end of ROTC, they have an educational delay program. So they don't pay you to go to law school per se, but they do give you the time so that you defer your active duty obligation. So I was able to earn one of those slots and uh, they gave me three years. Campbell came knocking was a really good fit for me because I have uh, family and uncle and aunt who who were part of uh, the, the second class through the gates there in Bowie's Creek. And um, we were talking before the recording had always heard stories about Campbell and they always seemed like real hunky dory and everything like great tales of, of the small town and the school. Uh, And I wasn't able to process like the bad parts of the stories before, (laughs) like the terrifying parts of the stories before I came. But um, that was a huge influence on me uh, and, and ended up at Campbell. My first two years were in Bowie's Creek and finished up in 2010 when we moved to Raleigh. So with a little bit of construction dust still under the way underway as they finished up. And yeah, I bet, I bet when you landed at uh, your first year, uh, a whole new world, you're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Cause you're, yeah. you had this whole vision, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I will, I will never forget. It was actually professor Wallace who's still there was, uh, was my first professor. 
he gave us like an easy, not not easy, but sort of the Professor Wallace style. Like, let's let's get you into the the pool on a slant. So it wasn't like the backbreaker that Torts was the very next class. So I came out of that first class like, I don't know what people are complaining about. Law school is not so bad. Professor Wallace seems like great. a nice guy. Yeah, and then I walk into Old Kivet. And Professor Button, who's no longer with the school, but he was uh, one of the torts professors at the time. And he wasn't in there. So we're all sitting down like I'm sitting beside my roommates and chatting and stuff. Button just walks in, like throws his his casebook onto the podium and just immediately calls on my roommate who's sitting right next to me. It's like it's like witnessing somebody get shot right beside you. And uh, and, you know, that's uh, that, that was the, the tone and tenor of things. I had Professor Lord. Uh, right after that for contracts. So if you're if you've taken part in the the Richard A. Lord moot court competition, that's his that's the namesake. Um, if you've heard stories of Professor Lord, fantastic professor, really took me under his wing, but classic law school professor. So it was a good experience, and and I was my class was uh, the beneficiary of getting to to have a feet in both pools in Bowie's Creek and Raleigh, and that was that was really special looking back on it. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, experience because you you get you know small town really honed in society so to say of uh, mm-hmm. the Bowie's Creek culture and then oh, just everything floodgates almost open up yeah. being so close to all the courts and everything. Yeah. So you you got through the Raleigh year, graduated. Did you go back uh, and do your JAG um, requirements uh, for that slot that you got? Yeah. So the the. Business of the JAG course, probably a, a story for another time, but uh, entered in uh, about four or five months after taking the bar that, you know, you got to wait to, to, they only do so many training classes for new JAG officers a year, um, had to wait on bar results and then uh, started right after the the turn of the new year in, in 2011. And then within a year of that, I was prepping for, gosh, within nine months of, of coming on to active duty after training, I was prepping for a deployment to Iraq. Uh, we pulled out all troops at the end of 2011. So that got off ramped literally as I was sitting on like my last two weeks off before uh, before going. And then within 30 days of that cancellation and I'm unpacking my apartment again and stuff, I, I get a get word that we're going to Afghanistan. So end up that did not get off ramped. I went there for a year and practiced uh, International humanitarian law, so operational law, is uh, what the army called it. And uh, great experience. And then came back and was a prosecutor. Was a special victim counsel. Uh, I've been. I'm still in the reserve, so I'm a, a, a criminal law defense counsel, a criminal defense counsel now. And that's a position I've been in for a while. So my my time in the army has been uh, tilted towards criminal law, but uh, sort of that. Uh, that fundamental base was international humanitarian law, which set me up for this position. And you were you were in the front line, so to say, of seeing all the humanitarian issues that were definitely relevant for Afghanistan purposes, but relevant to what you do in your current role now. So how did that prep you to get to your role now? And what, what do you do uh, in your position? Yeah. So for those that don't know, international humanitarian law, it, it's different than international human rights law. Folks might get uh, might, might have some familiarity with IHRL, but IHL, it's also known as the law of armed conflict or the law of war. It's the business of, of how war is regulated, the rules of war, for, for lack of a better term. So if you've heard of things like the Geneva Conventions, Hague, uh, that sort of thing, that that is the core, at least a, a core portion 
of IHL. And that's the law that I was practicing both before and during the, the deployment. So we were in active combat operations and I was advising on all sorts of operations, whether they were uh, actual you know, offensive operations. So we're using force, we're going after to certain targets and whatnot. We're reacting to situations that happen. So uh, a unit comes under fire. Uh, we're doing other operations, psychological operations, uh, that sort of thing. And, and uh, the law is interwoven through all of that. And, and JAGs, uh, as legal advisors in the, in the military, play an important role in that. And I sat in a command center. So I, it looked like a, a NASA uh, control center. If you're familiar with the movies or maybe you're a rocket scientist listen, listening to this, um, lots of screens on the front showing instead of rockets and, and space, it's battlefield imagery. So live feeds from drones, uh, active maps that are being updated with troop locations and whatnot. And then the folks in the command center are stakeholders. So they're decision makers uh, that have control over, uh, you know, quite frankly, use of force, uh, how units are employed, who goes where. And the legal advisor has a has a seat right in there. So I, I ran you know, seven days a week operations uh, with the team. And yeah, it was a heck of a place to cut your teeth in the field of law, but it it really sent home the importance and the value of these rules, why they exist. Having a seat at the table, the fact that that our military gives an attorney a seat at the table in an environment like that says a lot. And it, it really impressed upon me that the commitment that the U.S. has to respecting and abiding by those rules uh, during our, our combat operations. That's incredible. Like I didn't, I didn't know this. I was one of the, I thought it was more of what the opposite of what you sure. were going to say on the human rights aspect. And I can totally visualize the NASA setup perfectly in my mind. And I'm just, mm -hmm. wow. So it, that does put in the importance on what the, at least the the government or the people uh, running operations have put into place on following the rules. Like it's almost like they they're there for a reason and we're going to respect them because it's the right thing to do. Was that the, about the feeling that you got? Yeah. The, so the U S military has the backdrop. It, it, it's criminally enforced, right? So that's not the, this, they don't lead by, uh, by stick, so to speak. It is, it's sort of ingrained. We're a professional military. So part of that, is is respecting the rule of law in Afghanistan in particular, where they're uh, trying to at at the request of the Afghan government trying to assist them in in rebuilding process. Obviously, that is, that's taken a turn uh, now, but part of that is is demonstrating the value of rule of law, the importance of these rules. You're teaching and training Afghan soldiers while also at the time fighting in, uh, an insurgency. And it's critical that you be seen and that you do, in fact, follow the law. I mean, it, it, it'd be no different uh, locally if you're you're learning from uh, you know, law professors or whoever that have no regard for the rule of law, but they're trying to teach you. It wouldn't have much much weight or much value. And in that context, lives matter. It, it quite literally affects lives. Uh, if, if the rules aren't followed, those that that shouldn't be that are in harm's way, but should be protected are not. And so you can have civilian casualties. You can have all manner of, of destruction that's simply unnecessary and unwarranted. And that's that's really why IHL developed, why the world came together uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s for the first Geneva Convention, uh, why it has again come together again and again uh, for, for other treaty laws or uh, 
you know, development of customary laws. Quite frankly, it's why the world, I, 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 this is Thomas speaking in, in my own opinion, but it's why you've seen such a cohesive response to the Ukraine armed conflict uh, because the world looks at this and you may not know IHL, you may not have heard of the Geneva Conventions, but you look at some of the stuff that's happening there and you say, something's th there has to be something that would stop that or that, that would outlaw that sort of thing. And there is, and that's, that's where IHL comes into play. So you did the your your deployment and solid in action. You're still in the reserves now. How'd you make your way to the Red Cross? So life, my, if I could impress upon law students that are listening to this, one thing it's that just embrace the the uh, unknowns of your career pathway. I sat as a three L thinking that the the pathway that I had projected for myself was it that if I if I strayed from it that 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 was a problem that there was like almost this like in, not not caused by Campbell but this institutional sort of push that you got to pick something that's got to be your career you 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 know changing jobs or whatever that's a bad thing uh, but what I've come to realize is that that there is no way and this is applicable to life in general but there's no way to predict the twists and turns that your life is going to take you for me uh, we. My wife and I were were both JAG officers. We're serving. We had our first baby on the way, and and decided that active duty life and everything that goes along with it just wasn't for us. So we wanted some stability, some more stability. So we we got out, uh, switched into the reserves, and I actually went into private practice. I didn't transition straight into the the Red Cross. Um, I I was doing all manner of things uh, for for just normal everyday firms, just like exist in North Carolina, and. One day uh, in the middle of the pandemic, I get a text message from my my prior my my first boss on active duty. Uh, they call him the, the staff judge advocate, so that sort of leader of a of a JAG office. Think of him like the senior partner. And uh, this is Colonel Bagwell to me at the time, but Randy, uh, as he goes by now that he's retired, just texted me. He had been retired for a couple of years at that point. I knew that he was with the Red Cross, but didn't have a good idea what he was doing there. And he said, hey, do you have some time to talk? And I've stayed, I had stayed close with Randy up to that point. Like, you know, the, the same that you would do with maybe a professor or something like just keeping up with where they are in life. But we don't text. And so when Randy texted, I was like, this is odd. And, and I talked to my wife. I was like, this is going to be weird asking this, but should I take this call? Like, is this something, does this make sense? And, and she's like, yeah, yeah, see what he wants to say. I bet he has a job. And well, yeah, especially uh, since you both were in the JAG right. position, right? So she, right. that was interesting. Yeah. So he, my, my predecessor in this position, who I actually also served with in Afghanistan, uh, she had moved on uh, to, to a group open philanthropy, which is a uh, large scale nonprofit out in California and uh, had, had, had uh, reached out to me almost simultaneously and said, Hey, you, you need to talk to Randy. Um, I think he'd be a good fit. And, and this is right up your alley. And so I uh, got on the horn with him in the, in the midst of all of that, since I had gotten out of off of active duty, I had stayed with a foot in the pool with, with IHL. I was doing, I was instructing at, at a local school here, Lehigh university. Uh, they're, their ROTC, I would come in every semester and teach on law of armed conflict and IHL. And then I was also doing some pop culture stuff with it, you know, going to places like San Diego Comic-Con and uh, putting on panels where we would use pop culture to try to teach some of these concepts and other legal concepts to, to uh, 
just members of the public. And uh, I talked to Randy and, you know, one thing leads to another. And by Christmas, I'm like having to have the hard discussion because I was happy at the firm that I was at. But I was having the hard discussion with the uh, the partners there. And, and you know, I was fortunate they had uh, they really supported me in, in that transition. And yeah, so it'll be it'll be two years pretty soon here in this job. Wow, we're thrown right into the right into the pit during the the pandemic. How did that go with taking on a new role and then navigating it not only with the complexities of humanitarian law, but throwing a pandemic in there too? Yeah, I I was lucky enough that I would not recommend having a, a we had a a new baby at home, our second. I wouldn't recommend a career change right at that moment, but it was good. I, I was lucky enough. I came in on a really good team. Uh, the 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 team that's under me. Uh, was was very cohesive and they had started to crack the code of offering uh, some of the stuff that we do in a way that was appealing to folks online. Our core mission, the reason that the American Red Cross is involved in this space, uh, you're not going to find American Red Crossers like on the ground in Ukraine advising on IHL or something. There's another part of the movement, the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is based out of Geneva. They carry forward that battlefield role. But where the American Red Cross is what they call a national society of the Red Cross movement comes into play is that if you crack open the Geneva Conventions, it's a it's a real light, easy read, I guarantee, I guarantee you. But it, what you'll find is through all of these treaties, through the four iterations of uh, of the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols that it has again and again, sort of the consistent uh, requirement, treaty requirement in all of those documents is that of dissemination, this idea from the framers that these rules, their legitimacy, their importance don't mean as much or they 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 uh, they, they lack something if the public in in high contracting parties, so in nations that are signed on, which for Geneva is everybody at this point, um, if they're ignorant of it, that if you have no appreciation of these rules, you're not going to stand up to your, your elected officials, your other leaders and say in, in times like uh, times of armed conflict, like, hey, this stuff matters. We need to, to abide by these rules. We demand that out of our uh, out of our armed forces or we demand uh, that, that something happen when, when these rules are overstepped. And I think you've seen that in our history, that the, the flashpoints of that U.S. military is, is highly regarded now. But roll back to the, the Vietnam War and just look at, at the public perception, not just of the war, but of U.S. soldiers and their conduct during that war to see uh, how, how quickly things can devolve if the perception is that you're violating these sort of uh, fundamental humanitarian rules uh, that, that affect people's lives. So we carry forward that obligation for the U.S. government. So we are... Um, uh, we are out there to help fulfill that treaty obligation. So whether you're you're sitting in one of our webinars, whether you're in a CLE, whether you're listening to this podcast, that is helping uh, fulfill our treaty obligation under uh, under the first Geneva Convention and its progeny, um, because it's all about getting the word out and helping increase the understanding for both legal and non-legal uh, folks that are out there. And that totally makes sense because the government can sign on into a treaty, but if people don't know what the rules are that the government has to be accountable for, it's a little hard to have people get upset if they yeah. don't know what to be upset about. 
Now, on the humanitarian law front, you mentioned The Hague, and does that bring in tribunals and stuff? Not necessarily for your role specifically, Mm -hmm. but is that what more humanitarian law or is that a a human rights law? So ICJ, International Criminal Justice, is its own branch of uh, international law. Uh, IHL is a branch of international law, as is international human rights law. but there's interconnectivity. So uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw in other areas of the law, because naturally, um, you know, you're, you're not going to have uh, a, a tribunal to, to adjudge war crimes or, or uh, take up those accusations without IHL and without that as a body of law to, to uh, form the basis for those offenses. So that's not the only thing. IHL isn't the only thing that ICJ takes up. There, there are all sorts of things that, uh, that, that, that are investigated. But when, when you talk about something like the Rome Statute, which gave birth to the International Criminal Court, uh, you're, you're talking about a body whose primary thrust is to investigate IHL violations, those, those brave, uh, grave breaches of IHL uh, that warrant international attention. That's why you see uh, these investigations going forward in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. And they always that that body always has an interplay with domestic law as well, because um, a nation, just because a war is going on within their borders or, or you know they're involved in a war, uh, that that doesn't uh, sort of box out their ability to handle or address crimes within their own judicial system. You're seeing that in Ukraine. they they have moved very quickly domestically on prosecuting. A number of war crimes. Uh, the, the first trial wrapped in July uh, over an alleged murder of a, a civilian there. And they're continuing to pace. There's something like 11,000 active investigations. And the ICC is a partner in that, uh, doing that. The, the Red Cross movement and the ICRC for its role on the battlefield, we're not involved in those investigations. So we're, we're a neutral body. Uh, the, the Red Cross movement whether it's the American Red Cross or who, whatever other arm, it's impartial. And that's critical to the work that we do. We work with both sides uh, to facilitate things like humanitarian access. You may have heard of the, uh, the, the establishment of humanitarian corridors in places like Mariupol uh, there. Um, detention visits for POWs and other detainees. Those things don't happen or they would be very, very difficult to secure if the Red Cross as a movement were taking sides and and calling uh, calling good guys and bad guys in in uh, an armed conflict, and so that doesn't mean that that we can't see with our own eyes uh, things that are happening, but at the same time, uh, those sort of fundamental principles that guide the humanitarian movement uh, serve a real definite purpose. And jeez, uh, just on Friday night last week, uh, President Zelensky. You know, made some some pointed comments about the ICRC and uh, their efforts to to uh, visit Ukrainian POWs at a notorious Russian POW camp in the Donetsk province, which is one of the breakaway regions. And you know, the response from the ICRC was, "We're, we're working on it. We have to. It, it's a two sided negotiation. We can't just waltz into a facility like that." But that's why. That neutrality is so important because uh, both sides have a say in that sort of thing. And uh, that remains critical. So ICJ remains really important. I think you will probably see um, some sort of tribunals coming, uh, special tribunals akin to 
what you saw in Yugoslavia, Sierra Leone, elsewhere coming out of this conflict. But that's going to take a while to play out. Uh, the Ukrainians have already been calling for it, but this conflict doesn't unfortunately have an end in sight in the near future. And and uh, like any complex criminal investigation, this one's going to take a while to unwind. Especially with how many cases that can come up. You said there's yeah. 11,000 ish right now. That's not going to get any smaller um, just yeah. with the complexity of each thing, which is which is why you guys have to be uh, impartial because it's, you know, enforcing the rules and you're like, oh, I'm on this side. The other side's going to be like, well, why would we pay attention to you? Right. How does the regular person get involved, so to say? The biggest thing is to, to uh, if you recognize the importance of it, to, to have an appetite for learning and for curiosity uh, that, that feed each other. The, the thing that I have seen in my two years in the saddle here is that uh, the audience that we really connect with and, and uh, that get really passionate and stay involved as volunteers in this space doesn't necessarily match up with their experience in in law. We have a ton of legal professionals that practice any number of areas um, that are involved with us. But you see a lot of just regular, ordinary folks prof uh, work in professional fields or otherwise who, because of the the their own sort of curiosity and passion for this area, really stay involved. So the biggest thing is to, to just seek out knowledge on that front. Um, I, I'm happy to offer a self plug. We do a lot of that education uh, here domestically, and and so we're a good a good source for it. But like any for the the law students out there, you don't have to flip over too many rocks. You're not going to have to do too much intensive legal research to find some really great materials out there to learn about it. The ICRC has a really really great database on its website of of information about um, about IHL, some basic building block components. Uh, the San Remo Institute for IHL, which is based out of Italy and involves a lot of uh, U.S. legal professionals as well. They have a fantastic resource library that's that's categorized really neatly uh, in, in all fields. Um, and, and then beyond that, we have a ton of programming. So we, we fulfill uh, sort of a leading role in terms of IHL dissemination, obviously in, in the U.S., but but globally as well. There are uh, just about every other country that's part of the movement is involved in some way, but we have one of the most robust and influential programs that's that's out there doing this sort of thing. So you can find our webinars, you can find uh, whether it's a recording or, or um, uh, live events that we do, and and you can be taught. You just sit and be taught. A lot of this stuff is is CLE accredited as well, so you get something out of it along the way. So that passion for learning, but also it. Don't be mistaken that that just because you practice, you know, corporate law or uh, you're doing personal injury work or workers' comp or uh, you're you're an assistant district attorney that you can't get involved and make a difference in this. Uh, some of our most active and impactful volunteers are legal professionals that that do their thing nine to five, but they've sought out and, and sought out that knowledge. They've they've gotten smart about some of these issues. And they're out there in their own communities as volunteer IHL instructors certified by uh, my team at national headquarters. And, and they connect with their communities. They're having the conversations around their dinner table at the water cooler or, or elsewhere in their communities in creative ways. And they're helping spread the word. We have limited reach. My team is relatively small at national headquarters, but 
we have a tremendous number of volunteer instructors out there. And so, um, you know, if you're inclined to pursue this beyond just reading and, and uh, watching and sort of absorbing knowledge, there's a way and an avenue to get involved and get active in this space in a way that fits your own bandwidth and your own uh, abilities time-wise. And that's great because that can also like, you don't have to be the expert in this field no. to, to get involved. And that's great to hear that, you know, somebody could be doing the, like you mentioned, contracts law, right? They could be doing that. And hey, we can, we can use your help. We can, we can need bodies over here. So that's, don't hesitate folks. You can, you can get involved. You mentioned uh, Ukraine, of course, and that's been on everybody's mind. So a two-part question on, on this, what really are, are you guys working on out there as the conflict is always evolving? And then two, since that's taken up so much of the air in media and, and a lot of people's uh, news cycles, are there other things going on out there that you guys are following at the Red Cross? Yeah. So as far as the the movement is concerned, uh, U- Ukraine is is a focal point, but it's it's far as the ICRC will readily point out, far from the only armed conflict raging around the globe right now. It just happens to be the one that's captured a lot of attention and it and is drawing a lot of resources globally for for you know uh, all the right reasons. Um, as far as Ukraine goes, the interesting thing about that conflict is that the issues on the IHL front that you're seeing uh, emerge there are are really fundamental core IHL issues. So the business of, of targeting civilians, the business of the responsibilities of an occupied power, the, the restrictions that exist against, say, moving citizens out of their own territory when you, your space is occupied, the protection of nuclear facilities and, and other areas with uh, what they call dangerous forces contained. Uh, these are all sort of textbook fundamentals. I mean, it'd be like uh, if you if you had a situation where uh, you're looking at some torts issues and it's like assault and battery and just like the basic like bread and butter issues. It's unfortunate because these these sort of bread and butter issues involve a lot of innocent folks that are in harm's way. Um, but it provides for, for our team a really good focal point to, to point out some of these rules and how they operate and to use sort of real life teaching points. Some of that is uh, we try to be cautious on because a lot of these situations are rapidly developing. What you think is is a fact and, and an undeniable one in the news is probably something that's under investigation at best or it's something that that is rapidly evolving. Uh, warfare, as, as much as um, you know, it's tried to be portrayed as as this sort of cut and dry type thing is a really chaotic endeavor. And uh, what is something that's the case today may may shift and and uh, be different tomorrow. But but that doesn't change some of the core teaching points that the uh, that this conflict is has provided. Um, outside of of Ukraine, non state armed groups are are uh, prolific across the globe. Think you know. Uh, Think the Taliban before they took over, uh, took back over control of Afghanistan. These groups that are not affiliated directly with a state, so it's not the state's armed forces. Uh, the conflicts involving NSAGs, for short, are uh, are happening across the globe, and and just because they're not, you know, the, the national armed forces doesn't mean that there aren't concerns about. Uh, their appreciation, their respect for IHL or the lack thereof, and the need to to um, to address those issues. Uh, we're still dealing with 
an ongoing civil war in Syria. Um, Yemen remains a, a hotbed of, of conflict and whatnot. And so uh, these issues are, are all over the place. The ICRC, for its part, is, is engaged globally on the ground, uh, making sure that those, those core duties of, of its mission are fulfilled. And, uh, you know, for, for our part, I think the attention, the, the point that I make to folks is that whether you realize it or not, almost on a daily basis, there's an IHL issue coming before your eyes, whether it's something you're scrolling through uh, on the news, uh, a, a uh, an article that you've seen elsewhere, a conversation, a movie or a TV show. I mean, it's, it is all over the place. And, and my team serves to, to help put the glasses on, so to speak, uh, for folks to understand the dynamics of those issues. And, you know, so long as armed conflict exists, our mandate is going to exist and, and we'll have uh, sort of important work to do on that front. Very important work because unfortunately, like you said, as long as armed conflict is still around, that means these rules have to be followed. And so good thing is that you guys are there to, to help ensure that. You said a, a, a phrase that I, it seems pretty uh, pertinent, putting the, the glasses on. And so that reminds me of studious type of thing and, and stuff like that. Well, being on the law school podcast, Students look for opportunities all the time on how to get involved on various organizations or various topics that they are uh, intrigued by or interested in. Does the Red Cross or or your group have any sort of uh, opportunities or different events that you guys do? Yeah, uh, quite a bit, actually, and and one a few that are tailored specifically for law students. So the, probably the biggest and, and most easily accessible one, we actually run a moot court competition every March. It's called the Clara Barton International Humanitarian Law Competition. It'll be in its 10th year of operation this year. It was actually founded 11 years ago, but uh, lost the year due to COVID. But it is the most unique moot court experience that that you can possibly have it's the only competition of its type or its kind in north america and i say this as somebody that was i i, I was on uh one moot court and two mock trial teams for campbell during my time had i known that clara barton existed uh as a competition i would have uh, and, and you gave me the choice between that or the other experiences that i had i would have done clara barton um it's a simulation-based competition, mean, meaning that uh, students step into a variety of roles uh, of, of IHL professionals that shift over the course of the competition. So one round, you might be a, uh, a military attorney a, a advising on combat operations. The next round, you might have to pivot and you're a mediator sitting before a UN panel. Uh, the next meeting or the next round, you might be a... Uh, a governmental official testifying before uh, the the you know a Senate hearing or something like that. Uh, the goal is to to sort of bring IHL home, like what the actual practice of it looks like to the students, and then the fact pattern that you deal with if, is an uh, it's based in a fictitious armed conflict that actually unfolds and evolves as the competition goes on. So rather than getting the whole fact pattern ahead of time, our teams will prep uh, generally. Uh, and then from round to round, they get an hour of prep time before the round. They're handed uh, dynamic packets of information that simulate what it's like to, to gather up information in the real world. So it might be mock classified information, open source reporting, uh, you know, social media posts, uh, intercept, you know, like intelligence intercepts, all sorts of stuff 
that that would mirror the kinds of of items that you would rally to to make analysis in the real world. Uh, you get an hour to prep, and then you're in you're in it in a round, uh, whether against another team, like directly squaring off against another team, or in single team rounds uh, where it's you and the group of judges. Our judges are are second to none. They're all uh, IHL professionals or, or have deep experience in that. And uh, they represent a good cross-section of the legal profession as well. Um, just last year, we had everybody from active uh, military JAGs to uh, big law partners that were in and had had some experience uh, in IHL uh, to former judges or active judges, tribunal uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys. Uh, and, and it's an accessible environment, one where you're not firewalled or sequestered from those judges. You're, you're rubbing elbows, you're interacting with them in between rounds uh, and, and getting a real uh, unique networking opportunity. So that application is open now. I know Campbell probably tightly controls what teams exist, uh, but it's something that if you're interested in it, our website, clarabartoncompetition.org uh, is, is a good hub of information and make the case to the administration, to the faculty, make the case to the advocacy program that this is something we want to be involved in. Uh, it's, it's a uh, sort of who's who competition of teams that Campbell probably regularly defeats on the, on the sort of moot court and mock trial battlefield in other competitions. So teams like Georgetown, George Washington, UCLA, South Texas, uh, Brooklyn School of Law, uh, all teams that, that I am very familiar with uh, defeating in, in other contexts. It's one that you can be successful in and one that, that you don't have to be an IHL expert or come from a, a, a school with a, a deep IHL like program. It's built to be accessible to, to students across the board. And uh, yeah, I would encourage you. Our application for this year is up online and you can get a flavor. There's a hypothetical in there. You can see exactly what I mean when I talk about real world materials. So get in the faculty's ear and, and, and the administration, let them know. Outside of the competition, uh, which occurs annually, my team regularly, so we have we carry a minimum of two legal interns over the summer. Uh, and those folks are are thrown into the fire quite literally, doing all manner of of projects. I I put my legal interns public facing, and by that I mean you are going to get experience that that not just benefits some other project that you'll never see. Uh, but I'm going to put you on the public, on the national stage in front of a lot of people and trust you to, to, to teach or to uh, engage on these topics. Uh, those two legal interns uh, can, can turn into externs. So I've got two externs that like the internship uh, enough that, that they now serve as our extern. I've got one from University of Texas School of Law and the other from Arizona State. And... Uh, we're looking at creating another position that's that's built around trademark uh, and IP protections related to how the Red Cross as a protected symbol is protected out there, uh, both commercially and otherwise, to, to preserve its its um, its status and its importance, its protection on the battlefield. Um, so that's a position, and then I carry uh, usually two fellows that are year long positions. Those fellows. Uh, can be law students under the right circumstances if you're the right candidate. One fellow is deeply involved in the Claire Barton competition. Uh, they quarterback that competition and really get uh, a, a substantive legal experience in, in helping lead a writing team of IHL professionals and create 
the substance of the competition, but also critical project management skills as well. And then we also carry a Henry P. Davison Fellow, uh, which is a uh, probably a more traditional fellowship, uh, writing, research, and and engagement uh, focused. This year, the IHL Fellow is focused, or that the Davison Fellow is focused on environmental issues with armed conflict. Uh, she just got back. She's a, a very recent graduate from George Washington School of Law in D.C. We just sent her up to Fordham for an international law uh, symposium. And then uh, actually our legal intern is right now in New York City uh, at a U.N. General Assembly meeting as they're launching uh, principles on the protection of the environment and armed conflict and representing the team and engagement. So if you're looking for a an internship opportunity that exposes you to the field, but also really empowers you, this is the one. I I, um, I, I try to bring real value to, to what we offer to our interns, our externs, and our fellows. Um, and, and part of that is just getting used to, to having the spotlight on you. So if having the opportunity to be surrounded by professionals who've been doing this for years and are, are experts like yourself for interns, fellows, or externs potentially to get that type of exposure, but then also have the trust by these professionals to be the face of what they're doing. That's huge. You don't really see that too, too much. You always hear that, oh, you're the intern, just go research this thing. And you're in your little cubby, you know, you hear those shocking tales of that. This sounds pretty cool. And that competition, like that's really cool hearing. I wish I would have heard about it uh, beforehand. That sounds really fun because a lot of them are just, here's your fact pattern and they serve yeah. their purpose and they're great. Yeah. They're, you know, they do their thing, but this is, you're running and you're not Dynamic. stopping. That's yeah. really cool. Final, as we uh, close off, I have two questions. First, how do people get a hold of you or your office if they are so inclined? Sure. So you can directly email me, thomas.harper. That's H-A-R-P-E-R at redcross.org. If you're just even interested in, in what we what we do, uh, our, our offerings, we are in the process of revamping our redcross.org page, uh, but you can find on rulesofwar.org, rulesofwar.org, a lot of information about the program. We'll, we'll sunset that website as we transition back to uh, redcross.org, but you can find a lot of information there. Um, just poke around. Our, our, we, we also have a youth arm of our programming, the Youth Action Campaign, that, that empowers uh, primarily high school students with adult supervision uh, to go out and, and do their own campaigns. And uh, that, that's right in your community. In fact, one of our strongest Youth Action Campaign teams uh, is based out of NC State. And so w whether you realize it or not, those, those opportunities are in your backyard. So reach out to me, email me. Steven's got my email as well, and and I'm sure he can hook you up with it, but uh, I'd love to talk to you more about uh, opportunities with our team. This has been very uh, eye-opening for me and uh, been a lot of fun, so thank you. As we close, Campbell has a vision and a phrase that we uh, like to go by is leading with purpose. And there's a lot of leading that I've heard here, but I want to know to close out, what does leading with purpose uh, mean to you? So- to me, that is uh, having a good understanding of your ability to impact things and an appreciation that your education there at Campbell, whether you're a day after the bar exam or 20 years since you sat for, for the exam or sat in a class there, uniquely empowers you to go out and make a difference in the world. And that doesn't need to necessarily be 
in your nine to five. Uh, you, you can work in something that you're happy in, uh, but your folks will naturally gravitate towards you as a, as a Campbell grad, uh, not necessarily because of the degree on the wall, that's almost irrelevant, but because of the skills and the values that were equipped, uh, that you were equipped with during your time there. Um, you know, if there's one thing that, that I have seen, um, you know, my fellow Campbell graduates versus other attorneys that I've practiced with and, and gosh, my 12 years out of law school, it's that you are operationally ready out of the gate. And that is very, very different than a lot of your peers out of the law schools. It's not to denigrate them, uh, but you need to recognize that and have that confidence uh, that, that uh, regardless of your relative experience, you can step in and influence others and, and know that leadership uh, and the ability to lead uh, in a particular direction and with that purpose doesn't require a title on your email block. It doesn't require a particular pay grade. Um, you can step up to that mantle and achieve a lot and and in doing so uh, really make a difference in whatever space you choose to, to invest your time and talent. Great words to live by. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule with all that you do. Uh, we really appreciate it here at uh, Campbell Law Reporter and uh, hopefully that we can have you on uh, in the near future. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks so much and thanks Thank for listening. You. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.